You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers podcast. Today, we start a new series, Edmund Hillary and Tenzig Norgate and the Conquest of Everest. This is basically a follow-up to our last series on George Mallory and the expeditions of the early 1920s that tried, but failed, to climb the highest mountain in the world. While you do not have to listen to the Mallory series to enjoy these shows, I recommend you do so as it really provides some crucial background on the history of mountaineering and the early attempts to summit Everest, but again, it is not essential. So today, we have two things on our agenda. First, we will take a look at the efforts to climb Everest following the 1924 British expedition, and after that, we will begin our dive into the lives of our two stars, Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay. I want to stress that the lives of these two men are really very different stories, so what we will do is tackle each of them separately, and then converge their stories for the historic summit of Everest. For today's show, we will focus on Hillary, and then move on to Tenzing in our next episode. That said, let's get started by talking about the state of high-altitude climbing and the attempts to summit Everest following the 1924 British expedition. Now, the first thing we have to remember is that the southern side of Everest, which was in Nepal, was off-limits to foreigners. To try and climb the mountain from the southern side was simply impossible. This meant that all attempts would have to go through the north via Tibet, and even Tibet, until the 1921 British Reconnaissance Expedition, which Mallory had been a part of, had forbidden foreigners from trying to climb Everest. The three expeditions of the early 20s were the result of a diplomatic breakthrough, and during them, things went pretty well between the Tibetan and British governments. However, something would happen that would poison the well for nearly a decade, and that was when John Noel, the filmmaker and photographer on the 1922 and 1924 expeditions, brought a group of Tibetan monks to England to be a part of a stage show that accompanied his film, Epic of Everest. Tibetan authorities were upset since the monks had not been given permission to leave their country, and they felt that the film and the accompanying stage production ridiculed their nation. As a result, British access to Tibet and Everest was severely curtailed. The whole thing was called the Affair of the Dancing Lamas, and at the time, the details were swept under the carpet by the British government. The diplomatic kerfuffle was officially blamed on an unauthorized survey of a region in Tibet by John DeVars Hazard, who had been a climber on the 1924 expedition. The truth of the affair was not revealed until 1981. No matter the reason, the diplomatic deep freeze between Tibet and Great Britain would not be melted until 1932, when the Dalai Lama would grant the British the rights to conduct another expedition to climb Everest. Now, the first thing done was not a climb, but a flight, this by Sir Douglas Douglas Hamilton and David McIntyre. 
And yes, the first guy's name is actually Douglas Douglas Hamilton. The second Douglas is actually hyphenated with Hamilton. I just didn't want you to think that I was reading that incorrectly. Anyhow, the mission was financed by Lady Fanny Lucy Houston, which is another pretty good name, and thus called the Houston Mount Everest Flight Expedition. The expedition used a modified plane to make two short flights over Everest, one on April 3, 1933, and another on April 19th. The first flight yielded little, as the photos taken were unclear due to excessive dust. The photos taken on the second flight provided some new information and would later assist Hillary and Tenzing on their climb in 1953. Now, these flights were great, but what everyone really wanted was another crack at climbing Everest. The Mount Everest Committee, which had managed the expeditions in the 1920s, was again at the helm of the next venture. To lead the expedition, the committee inquired on the availability of veterans of the previous climbs, including General Charles Bruce, Edward Norton, and Jeffrey Bruce. But none of those men would be available or interested, and the ultimate selection was Hugh Rutledge, a civil servant and mountaineer. The expedition would make three tries at the summit that year, ultimately reaching the altitude of 8,570 meters, or 28,120 feet, but the route proved to be too difficult to go any higher. Oxygen had been brought, but it had been used only above 7,000 meters, or 23,000 feet. As a note, it was on this expedition that Sandy Irvin's axe was discovered. Irvin, along with George Mallory, had disappeared on the 1924 expedition, and this was the first clue as to what happened to the two men. Now, a few important things about this expedition. First, this was a large endeavor, with 14 climbers. Second, the surge of activity surrounding climbing in the Himalayas meant that there was a growing profession amongst the local people as porters and guides and interpreters. The Sherpas, a Tibetan ethnic group that now resided mostly in Nepal, were quickly becoming known as the finest porters in the region. The Sherpas and the other locals involved in the emerging climbing industry were mostly based in Darjeeling, India. All this meant that these expeditions were becoming bigger and more efficient as they learned from the climbs conducted on the other mountains. Third thing, high-altitude mountaineering was rapidly evolving with regards to gear. The clothing was warmer, the tents lighter, the oxygen more efficient, all that sort of thing. The work done on the 1933 expedition would help all that evolve even more. And the final thing is really the introduction of a person, mountaineer Eric Shipton. Eric Shipton was the son of a tea planter from Ceylon, now Sri Lanka. He was, at this time, a coffee grower in Kenya. He would become a critical figure in mountaineering at this time, and will be important going forward in our narrative. The 1933 expedition was, in the end, a failure. Much of the blame was put on Rutledge, who was well-liked, but not assertive enough as a leader. What would follow next was a reconnaissance expedition, this led by Shipton, in 1935. This was a small-scale affair, which is exactly how Shipton liked it. He was different from many of the high-altitude climbers of the era. He eschewed large, military-style expeditions. He believed in traveling small and light. This would allow his team to be nimble and to take opportunities as they presented themselves, as opposed to being tied to a set objective. As a result, the 1935 expedition would climb 26 Himalayan peaks of more than 20,000 feet or 6,100 meters. The team would not go above 23,000 feet or 7,000 meters. Its main legacy was for helping to fill in the map of the region, but it was also notable for the inclusion of a young porter, Tenzing Norgay. Tenzing impressed Shipton and would be a part of the next two British Everest expeditions, as well as the 1953 climb, but we are jumping the gun on Tenzing. That will be our next episode. The next enterprise that would take place was in 1936. Hugh Rutledge was again given command, despite the lack of success three years earlier. This expedition would be another large-scale affair. And the result would be a failure. 
The monsoon snows arrived early, pretty much ruining any chance to make a serious try at the summit. Another expedition, this one smaller and low cost, would be attempted in 1938. This was led by Bill Tillman, who had been a part of the 1935 expedition, and it included Shipton, as well as Noel O'Dell, from the 1924 climb. As noted, Tenzang Norgate would be one of the porters. The expedition would again suffer from an early monsoon season, limiting their activities. However, the team would be the first to reach the North Call from the western side, and they would eventually reach a height of 27,200 feet, or 8,300 meters, but the heavy snow would prevent them from going further. As a reminder, the monsoons usually hit India around late May, and they would get to the Himalayas a couple of weeks later. This meant lots of wet, heavy snow. Add in warming temperatures, and it made for perfect conditions for avalanches. The 1922 expedition had lost seven porters to an avalanche in such a situation. So, after the 1938 expedition, there would be no serious attempts on Everest until the 1950s, primarily because of World War II. Now, while we are focusing on Everest, I want you to understand that high-altitude climbing was a rapidly growing sport, and the Himalayas were the last frontier of mountaineering. It was primarily dominated by Europeans, and not just the British. The French, Swiss, Germans, Italians, Austrians, and even the Poles were organizing expeditions to the Himalayas. The Germans, in particular, were aggressive about tackling some of the region's great peaks. As a reminder, there are more than 50 mountains in the Himalayas that are higher than 7,200 meters, or 23,600 feet, and 10 of the world's 8,000-meter peaks are found here. By contrast, the highest peak outside of Asia is 6,961 meters, or 22,938 feet. By the early 1950s, it will all lead to a heightened competition to reach the top of the world's great mountains, and no prize was more valued than Everest. Now, World War II, for obvious reasons, put a damper on mountain expeditions throughout Asia. But post-war geopolitical events would drastically affect future attempts to climb Everest. In 1949, the Chinese Civil War would end with the victory of the Communists. The Chinese would then move into Tibet in 1950, the Dalai Lama fleeing into India. And with that, any thoughts of approaching Everest from the north through Tibet were dead. Now, this will coincide with the opening up of Nepal to foreigners, something that we'll talk about a bit later. Instead, let's get going with one of the stars of our series, Edmund Hillary. Edmund Percival Hillary was born in Auckland, New Zealand on July 20, 1919. His father was Percival Hillary and his mother, Gertrude Clark. He had an older sister, June, and a younger brother, Rex. Ed's father was a journalist, but like so many of his generation, he would be deeply scarred, mentally and physically, by World War I. Percy Hillary would serve in Turkey during the infamous Gallipoli campaign. He was wounded several times in the fighting and eventually collapsed due to injuries, dysentery, nerves, and exhaustion. And Percy Hillary was not alone. The New Zealand contingent of soldiers in the campaign was absolutely decimated. While the numbers of the New Zealanders at Gallipoli is subject to debate, a safe guess is that there were probably about 16,000 or so troops, with casualties around 8,000, including 2,800 dead and more than 5,000 wounded. That is a staggering 50% casualty rate. Again, staggering is the only word that really describes it. These experiences would leave Percy Hillary fiercely against war of any kind, an attitude that would be embraced by the entire family. The Hillarys would move to Twa Kau, about 65 kilometers, or 40 miles, south of Auckland, on eight acres of land Percy was allotted after returning from the war. On his return home, Ed's father would publish a newspaper for a time, while his mother would look after the growing family. But Percy would also begin to raise bees, and over time, that would become the family's primary source of income. 
Percy would even edit a honeybee journal, and Gertrude would become famed for breeding and selling queen bees. As for Ed Hillary, he was an average student, and he would be sent to school in Auckland because his mother, who had been trained to be a teacher, wanted him to go to a better school. Each day he would take a long train ride into the city and another back. Ed would have his share of difficulties growing up. He was skinny and gawky, and later said this about himself, quote, I developed a feeling of inferiority about my physique, which has remained with me to this day. It wasn't an inferiority about what I could achieve, but a solid conviction about how appalling I looked. End quote. Friends were few and far between, and Ed was painfully shy around girls. However, he and the rest of his family loved the outdoors, and life in a small country town in New Zealand provided all sorts of opportunities to venture into forests and over hills. And his parents were great believers in healthy living, good food, plenty of exercise, that sort of thing. Ed also developed a love of reading, especially adventure stories, such as those by Edgar Rice Burroughs and Zane Grey. In time, Ed would grow taller and take up boxing to aid his confidence. He would eventually reach six foot two, a gangly but strong young man. Ed's life would change in 1935, when his school organized a trip to Tonorio National Park in the center of the North Island. This was in August, meeting wintertime. Ed would go along and see snow for the first time. He learned to ski, had snowball fights, and found himself enthralled by this new and exciting world. That same year, the Hillary family would move to Auckland. Their bee business was booming, and it kept the entire family busy much of the year. Ed would then spend two years at the University of Auckland before leaving school in 1938 to focus on working for his father, who had 1,600 hives throughout the region. Both he and his brother Rex loved the freedom and adventure the life offered them. As a teen, Edward began tramping, meaning hiking and camping and exploring. He was a natural at it. He loved the freedom and discovery the outdoors provided. Around this time, he would visit the South Island of New Zealand and go to the Southern Alps, a mountain range extending much of the length of the island. Here he saw mountaineers and coaxed a friend to go on his first real climb, aided by a guide. Hillary would call it the happiest day of his life. An exciting, amazing new world had been opened to him. In the late 1930s, the Hillary family, including Ed, would embrace a life philosophy called radiant living. I've seen it described as a proto-New Age movement, with nods to Christianity, New Thought, and Transcendentalism. Amongst many things, it preached eating in specific, healthy ways and encouraged outdoor activities. Another tenet of radiant living was pacifism, and this would challenge Hillary once World War II began in 1939. Ed initially applied to join the Air Force, but withdrew his application due to his father's opposition to the war. Thus, Ed and his brother would register as conscientious objectors. As beekeeping was listed as a reserve occupation, Ed would be exempt from military service. However, his brother Rex was denied that option, and instead would spend four years in a detention facility with 800 other conscientious objectors. Ed's anti-war convictions and devotion to radiant living would waver as the war went on, and especially when Japan threatened Australia and New Zealand. Thus, in 1943, he joined the Air Force and would serve as a navigator on Catalina flying boats, which were amphibious aircraft. He would serve in Fiji and the Solomon Islands, and in his free time, he enjoyed sailing and climbing whenever he could. Also, these experiences would offer Hillary a first glance at people who suffered far greater poverty and hardships than he had ever imagined, and his sympathy for those mired in such desperate situations is something that would stick with him for his entire life. Hillary would have a near-fatal experience in 1945, when a boat he had built with a friend caught fire. He would be severely burned on his back and spend three weeks in a hospital recovering. In December, with the war over, he would be flown back to New Zealand and discharged. 
Post-World War II, Ed Hillary was no longer a kid. He was now 26 years old, and he had some world experience under his belt. But he didn't have any grand plans. He liked beekeeping and assumed that that would be his future. However, he had an adventurous spirit, and he would take to the mountains to hike and climb and ski whenever he could. And then in 1946, he would meet Harry Ayers, one of New Zealand's most famous climbers. Ayers had a reputation as an expert on mountain ice, and he would take Hillary under his wing. With Ayers and others, Hillary would learn and master the technical side of climbing. He would spend three straight years climbing with Ayers, often going to the Southern Alps. These peaks, there are 17 of them between 9,800 and 12,200 feet, or 3,000 and 3,700 meters, were perfect for Hillary and his friends to hone their craft. I also want to mention another climber, George Lowe. Lowe was another of New Zealand's outstanding young climbers, and he and Hillary would become best friends. And with men like Hillary, Lowe, and Ayers, you see the emergence of an exceptional generation of New Zealander climbers. I have read that the New Zealanders were a little different than their European counterparts. They were not just climbers, but outdoorsmen, heading into the mountains and hills and climbing when and where the opportunity arose. Hillary argued that this made the New Zealanders better attuned to what was needed to climb in the Himalayas, as they were more independent, self-reliant, and at home in the wilds for extended periods. As for Hillary, he was viewed as a raw talent with tremendous skill and potential, and he adored what he was doing. He was the kind of guy who loved to throw 60 pounds of gear on his back and tramp out into the hills for a week, climbing and hiking endlessly. Also, he was known for his love of leading a climb. He was aggressive and tireless, and while he wasn't reckless, he was not afraid to take a risk when necessary. Another thing that many people say about Hillary is that he was an exceptionally kind and thoughtful young man, but they also note that he was fiercely competitive and stubborn. He hated to lose, and he hated to give up. In the end, by the close of the 1940s, Ed Hillary would emerge as one of the finest mountaineers on the island. He would join New Zealand's Alpine Club and even write for their journal, all the while honing his climbing skills. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. In 1949, Hillary would go to Europe for his sister's wedding and then head to the European Alps for the first time. He would be thrilled by the experience, climbing five peaks of more than 4,000 meters, or 13,000 feet, in five days. And then, just before departing Europe, Hillary would get a letter from his friend George Lowe. Another climber, Earl Riddeford, was organizing the first-ever New Zealand-led expedition to the Himalayas, and both Lowe and Hillary had been invited to be a part of it. This is what Hillary, now 30 years old, and his climbing friends had dreamed of, the chance to tackle 20,000-foot peaks following in the steps of greats like Mallory. Now, the expedition would have to fight red tape and logistics issues for more than a year, but would finally get going in early 1951, thanks to the persistence and patience of Earl Riddeford. This endeavor would be called the New Zealand Gullwall Expedition, as they were going to a range of mountains called the Gullwall Himalayas in northern India. Riddeford, Hillary, and Lowe would be joined by Ed Cotter, another New Zealander. They would arrive in India in May of that year. 
The small expedition would set off into the mountains with four Sherpas and not return for three months. The whole thing would be a great success. The team climbed five peaks of more than 6,000 meters, or 20,000 feet, including Mukat Parbat for the first time. The mountain, which is 7,242 meters high, or 23,760 feet, was climbed by Riddiford, Cotter, and one of the Sherpas, Pasang Dawa Lama. Speaking of the Sherpas, Hillary would get to work with them for the first time on this expedition, and the two groups would get along well. The New Zealanders were more open and friendly than the British, and they weren't afraid to haul their own gear, earning them the respect of the local porters. So, it had been a successful expedition, but wait, there is more to come. A lot more. When the New Zealanders came out of the mountains, there would be a telegram waiting for them. It was from Eric Shipton, the legendary British climber. The telegram was an invitation by Shipton for two of them to join the 1951 British Mount Everest Reconnaissance Expedition, whose goal was to scout out Everest and the surrounding region on the south side of the mountain, inside of Nepal. This invitation was a coup for the New Zealanders, who had gained some notoriety for the work that they had been doing. The big issue was that the invitation was for only two people. So, who would go? Well, things would mostly come down to time and money. Cotter and Lowe had other obligations or simply could not afford to spend more time away from the real world, and thus it would be Riddiford and Hillary who would answer the summons, leaving the others deeply disappointed and envious. The climbers would also bring with them two of the Sherpas who had been with them the past few months, Pasang Dawa Lama and Ang Niema. Hillary and Riddiford, thrilled at the offer before them, rushed, along with the two Sherpas, to catch up with Shipton and the British expedition. The journey itself was quite the adventure, through villages and up into the mountains and across monsoon-swollen rivers. At one point, Hillary would find himself slogging through knee-deep mud. But the two men pushed hard. They did not want to miss out on this chance of a lifetime. They would finally catch up to the British contingent on September 8, 1951, at a place called Dingla in Nepal. The New Zealanders were worried that their English counterparts were going to be stereotypical military officer types, but those fears were unfounded. Upon meeting Shipton and the others, Hillary wrote, quote, I have rarely seen a more disreputable-looking bunch, and my visions of changing for dinner faded away forever. End quote. Now let us back up a moment and have a little history about the 1951 Everest expedition. It had been suggested by a young doctor and mountaineer named Michael Ward. The goal was to see if there was a way to climb Everest from the southern side of the mountain. This was the only option now that Tibet had been taken by the Chinese. Previously, Nepal had been off-limits to foreigners, the small mountain nation was, in fact, almost feudal in nature, ruled by the Rana dynasty for the last hundred years, with Nepal's monarchy pretty much a figurehead. This situation was mostly encouraged by the British, who had little interest in Nepal, but very much enjoyed the thousands of men who fled the impoverished and repressed kingdom and came to India to find work in the armies of the British Empire. These would be the Gurkhas, and they were a steady and loyal contingent of English forces in India and around the world. In fact, in World War II, more than 100,000 Gurkhas would serve in the British Army. However, with India gaining independence in 1947 and the communist takeover of China and then Tibet, a combination of reform and fear would force Nepal into change. The Rana regime would be toppled in 1951, and a parliamentary democracy was established with the cooperation of the monarchy and the fledgling Indian government. The new Nepal was eager to modernize, and opening up to outsiders was a start. This would mean the British would get a permit to scout the southern side of Everest. Now, an informal team had gone into Nepal in 1950 and made some initial surveys of Everest. They had returned saying that a southern approach to the mountains looked dubious, but not out of the question. And that takes us up to the 1951 expedition. In addition to Shipton as team leader and Dr. Ward, 
The other climbers in the expedition would be Tom Bordelin and Bill Murray. Two other climbers had had to withdraw late in the process, thus precipitating the invitation to the New Zealanders. There would be 12 Sherpas, plus Ang Tharke, the most famous of all Sherpas, as the Sirdar. The Sirdar was the head of the porters. The party would be very much in the mold of Shipton, small, light, and nimble. Shipton would leave Jogbani on the southern border of Nepal on August 27th, and, as noted, the New Zealanders would catch up to them at Dingla, about 70 miles north in Nepal. The expedition would struggle to find porters due to the heavy rains as bridges and roads were washed out, but they would inch slowly toward their destination. On September 22nd, they would arrive at the Sherpa mountain community of Namchipazar in the Kambu region. The expedition was now 20 miles, or 32 kilometers, and about 20,000 feet, or 6,000 meters, from the summit of Everest. The area was the home of many of the Sherpas in the expedition, or they had family nearby, so there were many happy celebrations and reunions. Also, Dr. Ward would set up shop and go about administering to the local people. One unique opportunity would find the members of the expedition visiting the famed Tangboa Monastery, something Hillary found fascinating. As for the mountains, well, this was the ultimate experience for many of them, and even those who had been to Everest were wowed by what was around them. At Namchi Bazaar, Shipnid would go about recruiting more Sherpas and acquiring gear and provisions. Now, I want to remind everyone that the southern approach to Everest was new to the climbers. No one had done this before. You just don't waltz in, see a route up the mountain, and start climbing. Everest is surrounded by glaciers and valleys, and, most importantly, other mountains, really big mountains. Thus, the role of this expedition was not unlike the 1921 British Reconnaissance Expedition to the north side of the mountain. They were to explore, and, if possible, identify a way to the top. I want to note that the aerial photos of Everest showed potential approaches up the mountain to be incredibly steep. Shipton was skeptical they were going to find a route, saying that he thought the odds of doing so were only about 1 in 30. The expedition would start out by hiking three days to the foot of Everest and setting up a base camp on the Kambu Glacier at the height of 17,500 feet, or 5,330 meters. The Kambu Glacier is massive, starting at 16,100 feet, or 4,900 meters, and stretching for 10 miles, or 16 kilometers, rising to almost 25,000 feet, or 7,600 meters. It is the world's highest glacier. Now, at the end of the glacier is a great, steep-walled, semicircular basin called a kum. This specific kum was dubbed the Western Kum. A side note about this, kum is spelled C-W-M, which is pretty odd. It is Welsh, and it means valley. I mention this in case you go looking for the name and get confused when a more logical spelling doesn't pop up on your Google search. By the way, kum is a great word in Scrabble. You can annoy your friends by playing it and come across as a smarty pants at the same time. You are welcome for that. Anyhow, this huge bull sat right in front of Everest and was surrounded by mountains of more than 25,000 feet on all sides, and it was so high up, no one had actually ever seen the entire thing. There was only one break in the Coombe, where the glacier filling the valley drained through a narrow gap between the west ridge of Everest and a neighboring mountain. The glacier pushes ice out of the Coombe and onto the Kumbu Glacier 2,500 feet or 760 meters below. This is the famed Kumbu Icefall. It is like a waterfall, but of ice, hence icefall. And this icefall, which begins at 6,605 meters, or 19,900 feet, is about 2.5 miles, or 4 kilometers, long, and half a mile, or 1 kilometer, wide, and incredibly dangerous. The ice here is ever-shifting. It contains blocks of ice the size of a house. And there are seracs, ice towers, 100 feet, or 30 meters, tall, 
which are always a threat to collapse. And we can't forget about the crevasses, which open up all the time. These can be 100 feet or 30 meters wide and just as deep. But the greatest danger of the Kumbu icefall lay along its edges. There are high walls along both sides of the icefall, and ice is always breaking away from above and crashing down onto the icefall. And I'm not talking about icicles. I'm talking about huge blocks of ice so large that they can kill a person. But what's really dangerous is when the ice above breaks off and turns into an avalanche. When this happens, from above, tons and tons of snow and ice and rock comes pouring down onto the icefall. As you can imagine, this can be very deadly. In 2014, a hanging glacier along one of the ledges broke off and triggered an avalanche. Sixteen Sherpas would be killed as they were pummeled by falling ice and then buried. So, the 1951 expedition had to find a way through that icefall, or around it, and into the western coombe, and then hope that there was a way to head up to Everest Summit. Thus, in late September, teams would head out exploring routes up the mountain. On September 30th, Shipton would take Hillary and climb one of the neighboring mountains, Pumori, to see if they could get a better view of Everest and the western coombe. The two men would head up the mountain, and at around 20,000 feet, or 6,100 meters, they came to the top of a bluff. Hillary looked toward the direction of the western coombe and would write this about the moment, quote, To my astonishment, the whole valley lay revealed to our eyes. A long, narrow, snowy trough swept from the top of the icefall and climbed steeply up to the face of Latza at the head of the coombe, end quote. Shipton would see this as well and say, quote, There's a route there, end quote. The men imagined that if one could get through the Kumbu icefall and then cross the coombe, which was huge, they could then start up Latsi, which is the mountain next to Everest. You would then reach the South Call, which was at about 26,000 feet, or 7,920 meters, and then follow a ridge to the summit. A call, by the way, is a spot where two mountains meet. The two men could see that the climb would not be an easy one, but it was an opportunity, and it was the exact thing Shipton and his team had hoped to find. Now, in case you are wondering, the expedition had no intention of trying to climb Everest. They didn't have the gear or men for such an endeavor, plus it was too late in the year, and there was far too much snow on the mountain. Still, Shipton and his team would spend another six weeks exploring the area. There would be two efforts made to cross the Kumbu Icefall, and it was then that they learned just how dangerous it was, as some of the men were almost crushed by a glacier that calved off the walls on one side. Also, Riddiford was swept into a crevasse by an avalanche, but luckily the other men he was roped to were able to hold on to him and keep him from being lost. One area of the icefall was such a mess that they called it the atomic bomb zone. No matter, despite all of these obstacles, the team would pick and probe their way through it, and while they wouldn't get all the way through, they would get close. Hillary and the others were certain it could be traversed in the future. The big thing that the team learned about the icefall was that it was always changing. The flow moved several feet a day, and crevasses could open and close literally under a person's feet. It was wildly unpredictable and dangerous. This meant that you couldn't set up a route and expect the route to be there the next week. This also meant that safety was a big issue, especially for the Sherpas, whose job was not to cut steps or set up ropes, but to follow those trails established by the climbers. Shipton saw that setting up a safe route through the icefall as one of the biggest challenges of any expedition. By the way, I put some links on explorerspodcast.com to some photos of the icefall, and I highly encourage you to check these out, or just go do your own online search. The images you will find are quite astounding. So in addition to the Kumbu Icefall, the team would explore the foothills of Everest. Hillary would spend two weeks with Shipton, and the time would leave a deep impression on him. Hillary admired the man's love of exploration and discovery, 
and he respected Shipton's willingness to put himself out in front and never ask others to do what he wanted. The New Zealand contingent would depart on November 4th and, along with a dozen porters, reach Kathmandu on November 17th before heading back to New Zealand. The 1951 British Mount Everest reconnaissance expedition had been a success. They had identified a potential route to the summit from the south side of the mountain. Shimpton wanted to make a go for the summit the next year, and Hillary was thrilled at the prospect of being part of that team. However, there was a big issue. The British had not been granted a permit to climb Everest in 1952. They were given one for 1953. But for 1952, that permit had been issued to the Swiss. As you can imagine, Ed Hillary and his companions were enormously disappointed by these turn of events. Instead of Everest, they were given a permit to climb a different mountain, Cho Oyu. And that was a good thing. It would give the British a chance to test a new oxygen system and to train the climbers at acclimating and operating at altitudes over 24,000 feet, or 7,300 meters. But that did not assuage the fears that the upcoming Swiss expedition, led by Raymond Lambert, would conquer Everest first. The Swiss were some of the finest climbers in the world, and one of their team members would be a Sherpa by the name of Tenzing Norgay. Ah, but that is for next time. And with that, we will wrap up things for today, part one of the Conquest of Everest. For this episode, we focused on Edmund Hillary, but next time we will turn our attention to the life of Tenzing Norgay, taking you up to the 1952 expedition with the Swiss. It is a great tale. So that is it. Thank you for listening. I appreciate your time and support, and I wish you all the best. So take care. I will see you next time. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for The Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.